you get into uh, like the financial investments that you are involved in now? Yeah, so, so it's, it's actually a, it's an easier answer than most people realize, but it does sound like we took the long way around. So I didn't grow up wanting to, to invest, you know, but I did have parents who pushed me to look at entrepreneurship. So when I finished high school in Jamaica at age 15, I finished fifth form and dad asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, oh, that's easy. I want to be a positive role model for young people around the world. <laughs> and he's like, oh man, that's that's not what we we're expecting, but we, we know you, so you probably have a plan. What's the plan? Right. And I said, well, you know, it came down to two final options out of four. And the last two were become a, a star soccer player, football player and use that for good or become a business owner, an entrepreneur that would own my own film and music companies. That way I could influence the way young people thought and the things I did. And so at that point, that's when dad said, all right, every summer and every Christmas, you and your brother need to present a business plan to us where we can invest 10,000 US dollars and you have to do five-year projections. Mm. And so we started studying, reading books. You know, mom had given us books in the past. So whether I think and grow rich or gifted hands. So that helped. And then I, w I went to university and dad said, I know you're doing biology, uh, intending to become a doctor, but you need to make sure you do business classes. So I did business classes, economics classes, while doing my science degree and actually minded in religion as well. So so very wide range of topics. Mm -hmm. And my, somebody, I consider my cousin, Richard Powell Jr. Richie went to the same high school as me, went off to Harvard. He was a year ahead of me in high school. And my dad is his brother's godfather. His dad is my brother's godfather. He's my oldest son's godfather. So you can imagine how we think of the family. He had put me on to Warren Buffett. He had been a tech entrepreneur, raised 1.6 million in a business plan competition, moved to Silicon Valley, the floor above Yahoo, and you know, on the cover of Inc. magazine at 19 years old as a Jamaican. And I was like, damn, Richie's not that much smarter than me. He's smart, but you know, I'm close enough. I know this guy. I could do this. So he became the chairman of our first tech company. We launched it in September 2001. The company set up the website launch February 2002. He became chairman. My parents invested. He invested. And what he said to me was, it was a lot easier to raise money to buy a profitable existing business than to start wow. a business. Mm. So it's likely that Real Vibes is going to fail, but it's going to be a good lesson. It's going to teach us about what it takes to actually start and then what it takes to scale a business. Right. We're going to learn from that failure and we need to study Warren Buffett. So we would read Berkshire Hathaway annual reports and we would discuss them every quarter. We looked at all the old annual reports. He had us studying Amazon's reports and then he sent me all the books that his mentors had him reading and he launched his own private equity firm. So that's how I got into the investing world is being forced to not try and be a tech entrepreneur in a startup space, but leverage the lessons to buy profitable existing businesses. Well, if you're going to buy profitable existing businesses, you should be studying Warren Buffett. It's just, it's a no brainer. And that's, that's how I got sucked into it. Mm. You smart dude, man. I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> uh, they're they're sharper than me, right? Give credit to Richie and to, to yeah. my dad and my mom. <laughs> I just listen. I'm coachable. That's, and that's why I like doing this podcast because I feel like it's I, I, you know, I like to just listen to people. I feel like the best thing you can do is either you know listen to people in the form of reading books, or in today's age, you can just try and get up with somebody and literally just listen to them and get knowledge that you might not ever get before. And it's just so, in today's age, it's so easy to just like find people and be like, yes, talk to me about, 
what you do and give me the game and the knowledge. <laughs> exactly. And that's why a podcast like yours is so important as well, right? You have listeners who wouldn't normally be exposed to some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about or I'm talking about here. And they get this knowledge at no cost. They just yeah. subscribe to your podcast. Absolutely. And so, so we, we need more people like you who are bringing this kind of information in a fun way, right? Your listeners can relate to you. So, right. so that's good, right? If Warren Buffett did a podcast, most of us are not going to listen. We can't relate to Buffett and he can't relate to our generation. Right. We can relate to you though. So, so thank you for what you are doing. Oh, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate that. So do you want to just um, tell us a little bit about your company? Um, what's, what's the benefits of investing in Jamaica right now? Yeah, so, so Bloomaho Capital Partners was created as a private investment company. We eventually do want to go public. But the idea was that, you know, six and a half years ago, I spoke at the Jamaica Stock Exchange Annual Conference. And I used to sit on the Jamaica Diaspora Advisory Board. So this is an overseas board of Jamaicans advising the Prime Minister through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Foreign Trade. And I represented Jamaica under the age of 35. And the Stock Exchange asked me, David, can you explain how to get the diaspora, Jamaicans overseas, to invest back in Jamaica? Not mm -hmm. just sending money back, but actually invest. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, there's just five simple rules. It's easy. Number one, we, we don't trust the government. So it has to be a private sector-led initiative, right? That's like any emerging market. And number two, it had to be led by someone in the diaspora who went back to Jamaica more often than most of the people who left, right? Mm -hmm. We need to know who to do business with, who not to do business with and had worked in finance so they understand the finance space. The third was that we had to partner with a local financial institution that was actually known and trusted by the diaspora. So that's a few names, but we want to avoid the Bernie Madoffs and those kind of issues. Right. The fourth, fourth one that we felt was crucial was that it had to be done under US, UK or Canadian law. It's not that we don't trust the Jamaican court system and Jamaican law, which is British. So investing in Jamaica is under similar as British law. So that's great. I feel comfortable standing in front of a judge, but it's slow, it's inefficient. Most of us do trust the US, the Canada, the UK system. And then finally, the one most important was that we needed that the person who only had $100, not just a person with $100,000 could invest. So it had to be publicly traded. So a mutual fund, an ETF, an exchange traded fund, or a public, publicly listed company that would look like Berkshire. Yeah, so we're pursuing the Berkshire model. Yeah, and that kind of rolls right into my follow-up question for that was, is this something that's reserved for people that are extremely wealthy, or can somebody like myself invest the same way I would invest in like an Apple or Amazon? Right. So once we do go public, anybody will be able to invest at whatever that share price is, whether it's $10, $20 a share. But the idea is that we wanted to, to establish a track record first, right? You raise money privately, build a portfolio to prove out our thesis and say, mm. here are the companies we invest in. We have a very concentrated portfolio of publicly listed companies in the Caribbean. And then we're building out a private equity portfolio as well, right? Now we own 5% of a technology company in Jamaica that we will announce in due time. We are about to buy 40% of an of a MFI, a microfinance institution in Jamaica as well. And we have a number of other deals that we're rolling out slowly but surely over the next six months. So our goal is to be listed on the NASDAQ capital market within the next six months. We already have an investment bank that's engaged with us and we're working on, on the S1 registration. Uh, once we have the IPO, anybody could open an account with Robin Hood or Charles Schwab, JP Morgan, Vanguard, and you could just buy our stock. And you know, quarterly reports, annual reports, annual general meeting that people would want to come to. 
and and that's really the idea. We think that you know Jamaica and the rest of the Caribbean is a, a very overlooked region. We tend to think of it as small, but then those of us from the region or who have done business down there understand how big of an opportunity presents, right? Jamaica, yeah. Definitely, definitely. So, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, that's fine. I can keep going all day. <laughs> so I know, um, I know Jamaica just had their election. Um, for people who are not familiar, you know, with with the Jamaican system of government, how, um, you know, does that directly affect, indirectly affect, and how does that affect the daily life of people in Jamaica? So, so I would say that it, it directly affects it. Uh, I think that we, we need to recognize that, that voting has consequences. Uh, we've seen that in the United States. You've seen it in the UK, Brexit and so forth. Uh, the, Jamaica is not like the US in terms of we have a parliamentary system, the Westminster system. So we're a former colonial country. So we're just like the British uh, we just like Canada. So that's the kind of system we have. We have a prime minister who is elected, but you don't get to vote directly for the prime minister. You vote for your representative. So it's as, it's as, as if you were voting for your member of Congress and then the winning party, the one with the most seats in Congress, then get to choose the prime minister, the head of the country, but usually the leader of their party would be the head. So you know, Prime Minister Andrew Holness won re-election by a, a resounding margin, actually very surprising to me that I was expecting 36 seats. He won you know, 49, 48 seats out of, out of 63. So that's, that's more than two thirds majority. But we had low voter turnout, though, right? Voter turnout has been going down in most democracies. This is not unique to Jamaica, the US, Canada, we've seen a declining voter turnout. And that's because, you know, our generation pretty much don't trust politicians anymore. We've seen too much corruption. We've seen, you know, not paying attention to the issues facing the youth. But you know, this, this was important. You know, the fiscal reforms that started under the, the PNP, we have two parties, really, the JLP and the PNP. You could think of them, it's not really good to think Republican and Democrats because and the Republicans will be considered far right in Jamaica. The JLP is more center right. The PNP is center left. So we think of them that way. But both of them want universal health care. They've supported that. Universal yeah. education is a big thing for them, right? So it's not the same as the U.S. Right. at all. Whereas in, so, you know, the U.S. is very capitalistic of, you know, yeah. That are far right don't want to well, yeah, the, the U.S. So I, I would say there are a lot of countries that are are capitalistic. Right? Germany is a capitalist country. You know, we look at the U.K., you look at Canada, you look at Singapore. Almost all of those countries have universal health care. Right? Mm -hmm. And they're looking at things like you know, child care and access to, to tertiary education. So the Europe is capitalist. We have to just start with that one. So the U.S. is simply an ultra-capitalist country, which is this whole pick yourself up by, pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of approach, which, which we need social logical. safety nets, though. Yeah, that's, not, that's not, it just can't, ultimately can't work. It's not, yeah. you create a permanent poor underclass if that is the approach that you take. And so we need to, that needs to be adjusted. But so Jamaica, at least Jamaica has universal health care. We can improve it. There's no question we need room for improvement. But well, this is good. The, the, the policy started on the one party, continued to the JLP. They've done immensely, you know, I would say an immense 
immensely good job. I mean, this has been great to see what they've done on the, the fiscal reform side, paying down debt, bringing down Jamaica's debt to GDP ratio now as a percentage is 97%. It's lower than the United States debt to GDP ratio. Mm. Now, most people aren't paying attention to that, right? The US debt to GDP ratio is climbing and Jamaica is actually reducing. So when COVID hit, the government had what we call fiscal room. You have space, you had a budget, you could you had money to actually help people and deploy it really quickly. But Whereas there's the always room right now and just the u.s has to just print new money jamaica is not printing money to solve yeah. the problem the u.s we just have the federal reserve going right just printing mm. so but the u.s is also the reserve you know, currency of the world it is considered a safe haven and it is much larger from an economic standpoint so, so there are things they can do that small countries can't but it is important to say that we have continuity of policy there are reforms that still need to be put in place that haven't been put in as yet and I do feel that Andrew Holness and, and the JLP, yeah, I know both parties, I, I don't vote for either one. I, I live in the US and I don't feel that I should tell people how to vote in Jamaica mm. or participate because I don't have to live under those policies. Right. But the, the, the policies to me are, are pro-business. That's the most important. The JLP is pro-business. The PNP tends to be more pro-labor, but which I think is a false dichotomy, right? What is good for workers, what's good for your employees is good for the business, right? If, if I treat my workers well, they're going to work really good and have better productivity, which then grows the business. So we should stop separating the two. We need to have business-friendly policies, and, and the JLP has more of that in place. And also, there, there is an age difference, and it's essentially a generational difference. Right? I don't, I'm not ageist. I, I know some really smart people who are 70 and 80 years old, and that's great. The problem is when you are older and continue to be a dinosaur from a knowledge standpoint, so you're not paying attention enough to digital transformation, the fourth industrial revolution, Right. where things are going versus Andrew is, is only 10 years older than me. Right? He's, he's 48 years old. He, he's a Generation X guy. So he grew up seeing the transition from the rotary phone to the cell phone. Right? He saw us go from fax machines to email. So he's far more confident with technology and what that can do for a country. I think anybody who's going to lead a country at this point in time needs to be Generation X or younger, or in their head needs to understand like those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you need to be able to pick up a phone and do a FaceTime call or, or come on Zoom, right? Remote work, these things. So we need to design for the next 50 years. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I was looking up some of your videos um, on Instagram <laughs> and you was talking about um, uh, regional recovery is what you mm. were talking about. Um, so what does regional recovery mean to you and how is that achieved? So regional recovery for me is really coming down to the idea of, of build back better, right? This is, it's not about going back to pre-COVID. We don't want to go back to the way things were. The way things were, were broken and, and getting more broken. What we need to do is a leapfrog. So for me, regional recovery first and foremost means digital transformation of these economies in the Caribbean. Right. We, we know the running joke about CP time, Caribbean people time, right? We, we, yeah. It's island time. We just call it color, color, color people time, man. Yeah, yeah. CP <laughs> time. That, that can't work, man. We, need, we yeah. need to boost productivity. We need to be more efficient. I love that I can go to the islands and we're all laid back. But when it comes time for work, man, like we need to just get the stuff done so we can get to the beach. How about that? Just you know, There's nothing wrong with being laid back and slowing down. The Europeans do have a different work ethic than 
than America. I, I get it. But the Caribbean is ridiculous. So, so we need to fix that. So that's number one is digital transformation, efficiency, productivity. But number two, and most important, is that we need to actually take some time to diversify our economies. Right? We, we started out focusing on, on banana, then on sugar, then on bauxite, now tourism. But we keep focusing on one thing. And all of us know from a business standpoint, if you have too much customer concentration, if my business is depending on 40% of the business from Walmart and something happens to that contract, business pretty much collapses. Yeah. But tourism is the same problem in the Caribbean. We are too dependent on tourism and it tends to be one kind of tourism from almost one area. So that's too much concentration. So we need to- You said it was like, yeah. was it like 30% or like- I mean, 37% is in Jamaica and, and worse in other countries. They look at the Bahamas and their dependence on cruise tourism and is insane versus Cayman, which is a much smaller island is, is and used to be part of Jamaica. Is, is far wealthier because they're not as heavily dependent on tourism, right? Cayman right now is still closed. I can't fly out to Cayman to do business. They're not letting us in because they went and made sure they built an offshore financial center. They did something that didn't care about the size of their country. They looked at Singapore and they have the whole knowledge work approach. So we need to learn from Singapore, Cayman and Costa Rica and, and Israel and say, okay, our size doesn't matter. Just because we have a ton of land doesn't matter. What can we do? What can we grow? What can we produce that doesn't require land mass and doesn't require a ton of people coming in? And and you think of you know, things like software. Right? I, I can export software. I can manufacture, manufacture more software. We don't need it more land because I, I produce, whether it's a song that I produce and I sell it in right. iTunes as software, I can write the program and, and produce it elsewhere. We don't need land to do that, but we can export something. So knowledge work is going to be crucial. And then the last one is that we need to pay even more attention to climate resilience in the Caribbean. We, 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 we are surrounded by water, but we, we're not efficient with water. Right? We're surrounded by salt water. We can't drink that. So, so we need to be worried about water conservation. Uh, rising sea levels do matter to the Caribbean. Your beach is about to be eroded, and you're known for sun, sea, and sand. So we need to be looking at that. And then we don't produce oil for the most part. It's Trinidad, Guyana, no Suriname. But we, we have to import oil, which is a pretty high cost. So we're switching over to natural gas, then solar. It is the Caribbean. We have sun. How come we don't have the largest number of solar installations? And, and we shouldn't bring up hurricanes. We can ha we have hurricane-proof solar installations in Jamaica. So we, we need to look at climate resilience and, and climate change as another big aspect of retrofitting the Caribbean. Mm. So when you talk about kind of relying on other people um, for the things that you need, my follow-up question to that would be, do you think that other places in African diaspora, because mm -hmm. I know in Black America, we mm -hmm. don't really produce anything of our own in Black America. We have a trillion dollar buying power, but most of what we, you know, we don't have for the most part, you know, Black owned grocery markets. We don't have Black owned, you know, uh, uh, tech companies. Right. Things. So most of the time we're using our buying power and, you know, the, the average Black earned dollar only stays in the black community in America for four hours. So we're Man. literally getting our money just to send it out away to other people. Whereas if you look at, you know, I live in Philadelphia and it's a whole Chinatown in Philadelphia where mm -hmm. Chinese mm -hmm. banks, they only shop at Chinese grocery markets. 
They put their money in Chinese banks. They hire Chinese people. My landlord is Chinese. He doesn't send yeah. anybody in to work on this apartment that's not Chinese. Yeah. They don't yeah. go anywhere to eat that's not Chinese. They have like a vacuum of their own culture and they're constantly funneling their own money. Whereas I think in black America, we have to really grow on the concept of investing with our own community, but we get we get caught up in like, it's so many things in black America. Like, right. you know, black people, they take too long. They do <laughs> yeah. have no customer service, but we'll, yes. we'll send our money outside of our community before we invest back in our own community with our neighbors who are literally right. benefiting off of what we're, you know, spending our right. money. So you, I think you raise exactly what the the problem is, though. Right? We have two problems. Number one, I start with a smaller one, which is what you pointed out to the, the customer service side, right? I am not going to spend money with a business just because it's black. I'm still going to hold it to a certain standard. You need to still deliver a good service at a reasonable price. You could charge me a little bit more. I'll I'll spend it with you because you're a black-owned business, yeah, and we keep absolutely. that dollar. We want that multiplication of that dollar, right? But still needs to be a good service though. Yeah. I'm not going to forgive you just because you're black. Like you yeah. need to actually deliver a quality service with a professional level. So, so that's important. All of us as black business owners need to make sure we are comparable to everybody else from a service delivery standpoint. So that's number one. But the most important thing you point out, and I love that you use a Chinese and, and not you know, the Jewish people as, as an example, but that is another example. Chinese people have spent a lot of time ensuring that they know their culture and then they pass it down to their children mm. to know their culture. I feel that black Americans don't truly know what is their culture and it's don't pass it on, right? We, as a Jamaican, I'm here in the US. I'm a Jamaican American. I was born and raised in Jamaica and then moved to Miami when I was really young, but I know I'm Jamaican and I'm passing on to my children what Jamaican culture is, the music, the food, the way we talk. I don't see black Americans passing on what I would consider the positive aspects of black American culture or talking enough about, here's what we have done. Here's our history. Here's what we suffered through, but here's what we overcame. Here is why we need to stick together and be more united. So, but but you are quite right. I think that starts in the home too, because being somebody that was educated by the, you, you know, by public U.S. education, we mm-hmm. weren't taught about ourselves as no, no. Americans, and we certainly weren't taught about ourselves as Africans. We was taught that our history started with the transatlantic slave trade, yep. and it ended with Martin Luther King came, and then we all got free. That was yep, yep. all that was it. Being black. And, and, and if you want to control a people, you just need to take away their history, right? You, you chop away the roots from the tree and you get to control the tree. So, so we need to see ourselves not as black Americans, not as Jamaican Americans or black British. We need to be seen as, as African diaspora and then learn about our history, trace our roots back. Are you from a tribe in Ghana, Sierra Leone, like wherever it is? And let's start learning about African culture, and then we start absorbing that and say, yeah, I can do that with my hair. I like that. That's good. I need to yeah. learn these songs. I like that dance move. Right? Cause we can see it through our music. There's, there's this yeah. thing in our genes, man. Like you yeah. look at, you look at whether it's a, a black Brazilian, a black Cuban, a black Jamaican, a Trinidadian, a black American, you go to the UK and you go back to, to anywhere in Africa and you're going to see the same kind of dance moves, the yeah. same kind of energy, the same kind of beats. 
we need to recognize that we are an African diaspora and we do have a home where we are welcomed. Yeah. We are not judged based on our skin yeah. color. We are not other. Yeah. And there are black bankers and black politicians and black lawyers. And that's normal. And, and, and there's a difference. thing, like when I, when I first started this podcast, I had an a entrepreneur, um, a lady from Ghana on. Mm. And I used to like just growing up, you know, I'm biracial. So I was always told like, you don't fit in with black people. Mm-hmm. Black people are going to look at you like you're different. They're going to look at you like you a mulatto. That's what yep. I was always taught. But, you know, and I just always grew up thinking like, I guess some people think that like not my black family, but I guess some mm. people think that. But when I had a woman from Ghana on, it was like, she really opened my eyes because she was like, if you were here in Ghana and you was just walking around, nobody would know that you're not from Ghana unless you open up your mouth. Like, exactly. like they're so welcoming of African-Americans to come back because yeah. we lose that. We just say it in America, oh, we African-American or oh, we black, but we don't actually mm-hmm. connect the african with the American. Exactly. Well, look, well, look how some black people in America treated Obama. Look how they're treating Kamala Harris right now. Mm. You're not black enough. Obama is literally an right. African-American. Right. Right. Literally an African-American, yeah. man. So how can you dare to say that he's not black enough? And how can you call yourself an African-American when you don't even know any African history, this dude's dad is African. His mom is American. That's an African-American. Right. So we we don't need to fix that, right? Marcus Garvey said, free yourself from mental slavery. And then you know, Bob Marley went and sang the song. Yeah. We really do need to free ourselves from mental slavery. And what I tell everybody is that we're investing in the Caribbean because... Jamaica is a for- perfect test bed, right? It's an R&D office, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. That's a, if it works in Jamaica... It can work in Ghana, right? It can work in Ethiopia. It can work in Nigeria. Jamaica is 2.8 million people. Let's go to the Ghanas, the Ethiopias, and Nigerias. We're talking about 30 million, 50 million, 90 million, 110 million. Those markets are huge over there. And they want our knowledge. They want our experience. They want our network. And Africa is the future. Everybody knows it. And that's why China is investing so heavily there. Africa is going to be the future of where the growth is going to come from in this world. We're going full circle. So we, as part of the African diaspora, need to be helping that in some way. I'm not saying move back. I'm saying investing over there. Yeah. I'm saying mentoring people over there. Right? That's, that's what I'm saying we're going to need to do. Yeah, and I think, uh, like you said, even if we don't move back there, because it's my dream to move to Ghana. I want to move right back Ooh, to Ghana. Right. Like, I, I tell my, my girlfriend, she like, no, nah, let's stay there. Because she from, my girlfriend's from Barbados. But oh, she geez, crazy, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she was, uh, she was born in Barbados, but raised in North Philly. So she even has that like, yeah. like, like you know, not I'm not going to say a disconnect because she still loves her culture, but she's very right. comfortable here and i think it's yeah. wrong with being comfortable here as long as we make sure that we reach back and understand our roots and understand where we come from because exactly. we can't get told like you know we was all monkeys running around in the jungle if we know that we was building the pyramids if we know exactly the most advanced civilization nobody can come and tell you that we was just you know a bunch of savages but that's exactly. the images that we see over and over and over and over again of Africa is just, you know, just 
goofiness, basically lies. It is lies. It is lies. But if you control the media, you get to set the narrative, right? The, the conquerors are the ones who write history. Absolutely. So what we need to know is rewrite history with mm. facts. And just simply say, hey, here's what Egyptians look like, right? Here, Here's what... The people around Jesus look like oh, right. <laughs> Jesus, right? All this stuff we need to be talking about Mansa Musa and these guys. Great, I love reading about Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great, but let's let's read about Mansa Musa and these other guys as well. Yeah, let's let's make sure that history is balanced. Yeah. That's all we want. We want balanced history. We're not saying yeah. that you need to turn it on its head. Just tell the truth. That's all. But that means we shouldn't be asking permission to tell the truth. We need to spend our own money to tell the truth, tell our stories. Yeah. That's what yeah, needs yeah. to happen. That's why I love, you know, companies like um, like Diddy has Revolt TV. Yeah, man. Every week they give black news. This is black yep. news that we're gonna give. And it's sad for me to see like, you know, like something like The Breakfast Club, which is nice, but they not black owned. So even though they might say some pro-black stuff, they still got a muzzle on at the end of the day to where right. they come out and say, look, this is what it is. This is the black news. So I'm just all about trying to support, you know, the, the, the black owned media companies that are giving you the facts straight and the only yep. agenda that they have to progress is just educating black people about themselves. It's freeing us from mental slavery. And, and that's not a bad thing, right? The, the majority of news is owned by white people. And so they tell the news from their perspective, right? Imagine how different Black Lives Matter would be reported on if we had more black owned news, newspapers and TV shows reporting on that. Right. They, they, we get it because we live it. If you're a white person, you literally cannot understand what it's like to live in America with our skin color. Yeah. You literally cannot. You can try to empathize. Right. Your boyfriend might be black. Your husband might be black. But you know, you literally can't relate to that. You've never walked into a store and had the security guard following you or heard the camera following you. You've never worried when the police pulls you over at all. So you need to hear our lived experience. Like, be quiet and listen to our lived experience. Let us report on our lived experience. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, no more let. We're just going to do it. We're going to just own our yeah. own media. So we don't ask you to let us do anything anymore. And just that's do it. the thing that I always try and stir people on in my generation. Like, we have so much buying power and we don't even mm. think about it like we will we will go spend on a designer bag quickly like here right. take we build out. brands we we build brands let's start with and, and you have to give credit to hip-hop culture which mm. is truly black america and obviously jamaicans were involved with in those things whether it's you know we're talking about dj cool herc biggie heavy d pepper from salt and pepper those are all jamaicans right yeah. so we played our part but hip-hop culture built timberland into a billion-dollar brand, the shoes, Timberland. That's that's us. I mean, there there there's so many brands I never knew about until I heard it in a hip hop song. Whether it's Louis yeah. Vuitton or Gucci, we, we're talking about drinks. I'm like, Cavassier, what's what's that? But yeah. that song, the Cavassier, is when I first heard about this drink. Right? So, and I'm glad to see Diddy now turn around and do a Ciroc instead. Like, why are we promoting all these other brands, Tommy Hilfiger and these guys who don't want us wearing their stuff? Right. Don't even. Don't even. Fool with don't us. want us. Yeah, they don't mess with us. They don't donate any money to our communities. Yeah. They're not helping us. Guess what? We don't need to support you. Our dollar can go somewhere, which is why I, I used to love buying Sean John. I, I want to see more 
Black brands. I see Rihanna is partnering with LVMH, and that's great. She's been doing her stuff with Puma, and Puma been supporting Jamaica like crazy. So, so it's interesting to see the brands that do support us, right? You look at Nike and Jordan. Yeah. But we can do more. Definitely. We can do more. Yeah, absolutely. And we can. And we can. I always say, you know, just the people locally, like we, even if it was just a neighborhood, let's say somebody mm-hmm. sell platters, you know, there's so many people in Philadelphia that sell platters. I know there's people everywhere that sell platters, but in right. the area of South Philly, I know five, 10 people that sell platters. How about instead of going to, you know, get a pizza or going to McDonald's, we all just go buy a platter from them one day. Their yeah. business is going to grow to the point where they might need some help. Now they're going to hire a staff. Hire somebody, yeah. Hire somebody out of the community. Yep, that's that's exactly how we have to be thinking. Like every within my community gets multiplied within my community. That's how we have to be thinking because it empowers the community even more. Spend that money. Have it go around five times, not once, right? Yeah. Just do that. So, so I love that. But that's where it comes in having access to information, right? A list of black-owned businesses. I should be able to just go on our website, put in my zip code, find all the black-owned businesses within a 30-mile radius. And then, boom, yeah. I can now say, all right, well, instead of going to this stationary place, I go into this person. I need gift wrapping paper. I need to buy that platter. Yeah. You know what is the simplest one? I need to buy a mask to cover my mo- mouth and my nose right yeah. now in the pandemic. Let me find that black business that's doing masks, and I'm going to buy masks from that person. That's the easiest one all of us could do right now. Yep. Easy. Yep. And really take that ownership and really change, you know, not just our lives, but the lives of, you know, our children that come after yeah. us. Generational wealth. Structure in place to actually replicate that, you know, a thousand yeah. times over. So. Nope. That's exactly what it is. 